Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Now, in this podcast, we talk about trends in the economy and in the future of work, and that means looking at different industrial sectors and seeing what's going on there. One of the most complex of these is the arts sector, music, museums, performing arts, There are lots of organizations, lots of people working there, and a lot of story threads about the future of work. So I thought it would be a very interesting thing to look at in light of the pandemic. Got to talk to two people who are on the ground floor of this. The first one you're going to hear from is named Victoria Pletner Saunders. She's a consultant, principal consultant with Wolf Brown. They're an arts consulting company. And she had some really key observations. One thing we talked about is passion pay, or really the fact that people love what they're doing in the arts so much that sometimes they work for very little money. That means that with the pandemic, some of them are actually making more in terms of benefits and unemployment than they were making when they work full-time. That's something that's worthy of discussion. Uh, the other interview is from Catherine Carlton. She's executive director with Orchestras Canada, and she's really trying to figure things out in a very difficult environment. All of a sudden, you cannot have people sitting in an audience. In fact, you can't even have an orchestra sitting together because you can't really social distance and have them play the way they used to. So she's kind of making it up as she goes along, looking at the challenges there. She talked to me about things like musicians being creative and doing YouTube concerts, as well as the fact that it's very hard to monetize that. And, you know, she's looking at models for what we might have going forward. Are you going to have a hybrid model? We have some people at home, some people at an audience. You know, again, this is uncharted territory. It'll be interesting to see what we come up with. So it was uh, very, very insightful for me. I found lots of things to think about from the discussion, and I hope you will as well. Well, like every other industry, the arts industry is going through a tough time right now. A lot of things are shut down. A lot of things may eventually open, but where we are in future may not be where we started. To talk about all of that, I'm joined today by Victoria Pletner Saunders. She is a principal consultant with Wolf Brown, an arts consulting company. Hi, Victoria. Hi. How are you, Linda? I'm fine. You're joining us from San Diego today. I am. Okay, West Coast. Well, West Coast or East Coast, it's all about the same right now. Everyone's struggling a little bit. Everyone is struggling. Yes. I've uh, been having conversations with arts organizations, um, in particular now with Philadelphia for a project. And um, everybody's, you know, finding the new normal, I guess. Well, let's talk about the arts organizations even before this happened. It was uh, a struggle day-to-day for a lot of organizations long before there was a pandemic. Yeah, um, it it has been. Uh, Many came out of the recession, you know, and were kind of finding their footing again and hiring people um, more. And then, um, and then this, you know, hit kind of unexpectedly. Um, from a workforce standpoint, there have always been challenges um, with there's things, you know, wage disparity, the rising costs of maintaining a workforce, um, lack of benefits for most workers. We've got a lot of young people who are coming out of the university system with bachelor's and master's degrees um, in arts administration, um, you know, some of the first in the last 10 years. 
and they're all trying to find, you know, jobs that will support them and pay their debt back. Um, and so they've, you know, they've been struggling um, as well. And now we have actual closures. Let's talk about, you know, the sector. There's lots of parts of it. Which are the ones that are better off or worse off right now? You know, I think everybody has been impacted um, significantly. I think that, um, you know, the words I've often used are de- it's been devastated or even it's been decimated in some areas uh, because everything about what we do requires people to congregate in some form. And so, um, you know, everything has just been shut down. Uh, not every organization is going to be able to recover, and I think many will be slow to recover. Uh, museums probably will have an opportunity to come back a little sooner because you can distance people. But the ones that are really going to be experiencing the impact are the performing arts organizations um, because of the, dis- the what's going to be ongoing distancing um, requirements, I think, for a while. Well, you're a well, consultant, you're a consultant in the industry. In the industry. Oops. Oh, sorry, what's going on with the microphone there? Uh, well, just cut that out. We'll just wait for a second. Well, you're a consultant to the industry. Let's talk about what your advice is or what you see challenges. You know, I think um, some of the, the biggest challenges will be um, how organizations are able to bring a workforce back over time. Um, you know, my, one of my concerns is I wonder about the, um, a lot of employees have been laid off or furloughed and they've been able to take advantage of unemployment and the unemployment has that pandemic assistance attached to it now. And so there are many people who are getting better paid in unemployment than they are, um, in their jobs in arts organizations and how that, you know, impacts organizations ability to pay, a, you know, a wage that the organization can afford while, you know, giving employees an incentive to come back and work. Um, I think that will be a real challenge. Well, that's an interesting point to bring up, that we're talking about people who are fairly educated. You mentioned bachelor's degrees at least, and they're making less at their jobs than they would make in unemployment benefits or... Yes. Yes. And a lot of them are working um, part time. I was at a conference recently um, for museum workers and I talked to several people who are working part time, two part time jobs and making twenty thousand dollars a year, um, you know, in major cities. So it's it's an historically undercompensated career choice. (laughs) You know, that interests me because we're talking about cities where rent is hugely expensive. And these career choices are really not practical at all. Why are they making them? Is it just love of what they do? That's the difficult part of it. You know, you often hear about passion pay, um, you know, which is paying sort of knowing that you can pay people less because they're doing something they're passionate about. Um, and I think we've sort of built the sector on the backs of our employees in many ways. Um, you know, I'm sort of bold to say that, but it's what makes it possible is this, um, you know, this sort of this un- unrealistic compensation model. So I, I don't know what the future will, of that will be, but I think that you will always have people for whom this is the work they do. 
you know, I could work in a lot of different sectors as a consultant and I, this is the sector I work in. This is the one that's meaningful to me. And so it is a very hard choice to make. There are those people who get paid very poorly and yet it's a fairly unionized sector as well, is it not? Parts of it are. Um, Musicians um, in the major institutions are unionized, you know, operas and symphonies. Um, The museums are becoming more unionized aspects of them. Um, But the rank and file, sort of the rank and file arts worker, the people that sit at desks, you know, getting the work done, they're not, they're not unionized unless they're part of an actor's union and they're holding two jobs. Um, There aren't, you know, there, there aren't many unions, but that's changing. There are many museums now across the country, particularly in large cities where the cost of living is high, um, that have been finding their, um, you know, sort of mid-range and entry-level workers uh, unionizing. We have one here in San Diego that's been going through that process. Um, and it's really because they sort of feel that they're not being heard and it's, it's the only option they have. Okay, so we have the pandemic hit, and there are these initiatives going on. People are trying to unionize, and there's recognition these are expensive cities. What does the pandemic do to all those measures, all those, uh, everything, really? It just makes it worse, you know, clearly. I think, um, you know, I I talked to a, a woman the other day, and she was telling me that of two institutions one that a major institution that was able to keep all of its employees working, working from home, but working. And another that told their um, 90% of their employees were furloughed and they were told to clear out their desks and take their keys, which tells you that they may not, you know, who knows who's going to come back. And I think that's, that's the part that's really hard to know um, how it's going to, you know, what the sort of the new, the new world of the arts will be, um, because everything has been impacted. Um, and it's not something we can just see the end of. Product. Yeah, cool. so It's not something where we have a lot of clarity, right? We are going to have a transition period where perhaps people will come back to some things and eventually we'll have a period after a vaccine or herd immunity or wherever else. And we'll be coming back into a different world. Can you address each of those things, the transition and the world later on? Yeah, it's something that I think, you know, I've been sort of the first part of my pandemic experience as a consultant that works in the areas of um, sort of human capital was how many jobs are we losing? How is this impacting people from that standpoint? And slowly as, you know, you get used to where we are, um, I started to shift to what recovery looks like. So I'm sort of on the early stage of really examining what recovery looks like in organizations. Um, I think it's going to uh, have a period where, you know, we start to get a sense of which organization types, which um, institutions would be able to reopen sooner than others Museums, for example, may um, be able to do that better, but their programming will be significantly reduced because of, you know, the ability to have people meet in groups. I think that social distancing is going to be a problem for a while. It's going to be have to be something that can be um, overcome or, you know, waded through. Um, and once, and so the performing arts organizations are going to have the hardest time with that. They can't put 
people on a stage to perform without being six feet apart, or they can't have, you know, the same number of people in a theater. So some of it has to do with if we can only put X number of people in a theater, let's say 250 instead of 500, does it financially pencil out? Or how do we make it financially pencil out to even do it? So I think that's that's going to be part of the recovery is figuring out what can happen and how that can be, um, you know, that, what's the business model, model for that. Well, the business model was always, already challenging, right? It was not yeah. like most of these organizations were making a ton of money. No, because they weren't making the money in the ticket sales. You know, it was all the philanthropy. And some of the difficult about philanthropy um, is the three-year, a lot of them have rolling averages for determining how much they have to give out. And their investments have all been decimated. So, you know, the amount that philanthropy will be able to have available to support the many, you know, sectors that are going to be needing their support will also impact arts organizations. So we're going to look at a different sector when we come out of this, right? One way or the other. Give us a vision of that. You know, we thought during the recession that organizations would, there would be sort of a a die-off. Organizations that couldn't survive it would you know, go under and that there would be sort of a writing mechanism. We would have fewer organizations. Surprisingly, that didn't happen. I don't think that this is going to be the same. I think there's a lot of organizations that are trying to get digital content up and make, you know, keep a relationship with their audience, maybe create a new audience because of the content that they're able to get online. Um, But when they have to start putting people back to work and they don't have the resources to get that restarted um, right off, I think that's when we'll begin to see organizations not be able to make it. Um, Smaller ones seem to be really scrappy. They have lower overhead. So, you know, sort of ironically, some smaller organizations may actually come out of this better than very large organizations. Um, But I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what my vision is right now. It's it's something I've been asking, you know, all the time recently. Is there anything you'd like to see organizations or the public or obviously government do right now to make this better? Uh, I think, you know, to the best of anyone's ability, the to continue to help keep people working in the sector, um, to keep some momentum going. Um, is is really important. So all the money that's coming down, you know, from government um, support systems is truly helpful. On a local level, it's hard for cities that are trying to find tax dollars to pay for their own, you know, um, city budgets to also find the money to continue to support arts commissions. Um, so, you know, I think continuing to find ways of um, getting money to support what is available will be um, really important. I think one of the other things, though, from a workforce standpoint that is an interesting one to look at for the future is, and you know, this is, could be a conversation in the future, but the um, disconnect between um, HR practices that are you know, taking place in the corporate sector things around employee motivation and retention, employee engagement, that our arts organizations have not been good at that at all. 
um, there are, you know, bright spots, but for the most part, um, those kind of employee relations have not really been paid attention to a lot because they know they can keep workers who are passionate about the work they do. And I wonder if this is the time to say, let's, now that we're bringing new people, you know, we're bringing people back into the workplace in the future, is this the opportunity to start a new way of treating the people that we bring back into the workforce? Um, and that's part of my, you know, um, looking forward and hoping for change that can come out of this is that we can come back stronger in how we um, manage and take care of the people in our workforce. Well, for sure, it's an opportunity. Let's hope it's taken in the right way. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Victoria Pletner Saunders is Principal Consultant with Wolf Brown. The pandemic is proving to be a game changer for arts organizations. It's forcing them to rethink their business model, what their audience will look like, really their whole existence. Now, to get an idea of how that is playing out in one sector of the arts, we're joined today by Catherine Carlton. She's Executive Director for Orchestras Canada. Hi, Catherine. Hello, Linda. How are you today? Just fine. Crazy times, though. Crazy times and times that we're going through on our own, but all gathered around our electronic hearths. Good thing that we have those. You know, I want to congratulate you off the top here. I am going to be speaking at your upcoming national conference. It was supposed to be live, and you made the decision to make it virtual. And I say congratulate you because you moved really quickly. A lot of organizations are saying, no, we're on hold. Maybe it'll happen in the fall. But you just said, no, no, we're going to change it up. So not everybody did that. Good for you. Well, thank you so much. And in fact, I'm really excited about this because what we recognized was we could have postponed the conference to some indeterminate point in the future, but it felt more important than ever to bring people in contact with the information and the sense of connection that they need to get through this particular time. Well, let's talk about this and let's talk about the worst of it. How bad is this for arts organizations, yours in particular? What I'll say is we're a membership association. We have about 130 member orchestras across the country. They're everything from volunteer-driven community ensembles, youth orchestras, training institutions, to the sort of nationally and internationally recognized ensembles that are the, the jewels of our major cities. And they are not-for-profit organizations. They are registered charities. Historically, their revenue models have balanced between earned revenue from ticket sales, contributed income from sponsorships and charitable donations, and support from government. And every orchestra has a slightly different mix uh, within those revenue sources, but everybody is, you know, uh, balancing carefully on that three-legged stool. Overnight, with the uh, limits on public gatherings that were brought about when the pandemic was declared, orchestras lost access to about 80% of their revenue. That's the, the portion that connects to uh, sold services, ticket sales, as well as charitable contributions. Um, and obviously people can continue to ask for charitable contributions at a point like this, but with the economic downturn that's accompanied the pandemic, it's not necessarily the most uh, fruitful area for work at this point. And because those two areas combined, earned and contributed income, make up 80% of an orchestra's income on average, 
the financial impact alone was really significant. The other thing that I'll point to, and I'm happy to uh, address this at greater length at a, at a different point in our conversation, is there's a financial crisis, but there's also a crisis of purpose. We exist to bring large groups of people together to hone their craft and then bring much larger groups of people together to enjoy what's been achieved. And with the pandemic, with the limitations on public gatherings, the thing that is the lifeblood and the purpose for an orchestra, bringing together people in a live acoustic space for a transformative experience, that's disappeared overnight. And that's scary. And it's not like orchestras had no problems before this started. I mean, you had issues pre-pandemic. Um, what I'll say is it's, it's a balancing act. I am just blown away by the level of skill and perspective that our orchestra leaders bring to the work that they do. Uh, but, you know, we're dealing with uh, concerns around aging audiences. We're dealing with uh, rather inflexible collective bargaining agreements with the artists. We're dealing with an art form that I believe is continuing to evolve, but the talk about orchestras is, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily focus on on innovation as much as it focuses on uh, polishing the diamonds of the past. And it's never been easy to um, to lead an organization with this with these kinds of financial models uh, behind them and many many stakeholders with somewhat divergent perspectives on what uh, good leadership looks like. So. Um, it's not work for the faint of heart, never has been, still isn't. You bring up collective bargaining. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people think of musicians as working really casually. They work a gig. They don't get paid very well. And in fact, it's actually a very organized sector, at least in terms of orchestras and large organizations. You know, the music industry is a really interesting place because it does range from, you know, getting 10 bucks at the edge of the stage and, uh, you know, selling your t-shirts at the door uh, to something that's much more formal, much more uh, regimented as the symphony orchestra world tends to be. Part of what I say is that um, we're, we operate that way in part because keeping the same group together year over year is one of the very best ways of honing the artistry to the highest possible level of, of, you know, gloss and and luster that this idea of working with a group of of musicians who are extremely skilled and over time you know it's like putting on an old pair of slippers the way that they work together is just so hand in glove so intimate so you know they breathe together they work together they bow together um how you hold the band together is by paying them adequately and by ensuring that they've got respectful working conditions uh, there are lots of uh, sort of interesting, um, I don't know, tensions, I think, between uh, the sheer wildness of a symphony orchestra in full cry and the um, uh, significant number of rules <laughs> around what can be asked of a musician, uh, how long they can play, how many services per week, so on and so forth. Um, but in a way, I think it's something that's evolved over time as how do we demonstrate respect? How do we create safe conditions within which the work can get done? Uh, and how do we ensure that people can stay committed to these careers year over year? 
It's really interesting that you bring up the idea of teams. This is something that's getting debated in all kinds of industries because we've had a model where everyone has a job. They come there. They're a team for a long period of time. And we're kind of moving to one where people come in more casually as they're needed and work and security are really questioned. Now, you are really an advocate, apparently, for the long-term commitment let's have a team in place for a long time rather than the kind of Hollywood model where everyone comes in and makes a movie, then another team comes and makes a different movie. Well, I think what I'd say is I have mixed feelings um, about all the options. I don't think we've, we've come up with the perfect mix at this point. I think that, you know, I've talked about the uh, sort of safe working conditions, the, the idea of continuity. What I haven't talked about is some of the downsides that are associated with that. I mean, I'm never going to advocate against safe working conditions, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think that there is um, a level of hierarchy in the symphony orchestra world that can tend to mean that someone who's sitting at the front of the violin section has an immense level of power and influence. Someone who's sitting at the back of the violin section may feel simply like a cog in an enormous machine. Is this a way of actually assessing human value and potential for contribution? Absolutely not. But the repertoire does demand, uh, you know, that there's someone, someone on top and, uh, someone playing, uh, perhaps a more, um, subservient role. Um, I think that the potential within symphony orchestra organizations is the question of whether or not we can flex in terms of who's demonstrating leadership in what aspect of the organization's life, um, who has opportunities to express their creativity, um, who has, um, contributions that go well beyond the concert platform where there's space for that to be, um, how do I say this, supported and celebrated within the, the complex array of things that symphony orchestras bring to their communities. You know, it's not just about concerts on stage. And I think that in many respects, the collective bargaining agreements are brilliant at creating the conditions within which those concerts on stage can happen. But there's a whole host of other things that orchestras have been doing uh, up to this point and continue to do uh, during the pandemic. I just want to make one quick reference to something that's really um, brought light to my days um, since the uh, uh, limitations on, on public gathering were first published. And that is the sense, the nuanced sense of the creativity, uh, the genius, the wild wit of individual musicians in orchestras. And we've seen that um, spectacularly displayed in the kind of digital content that is being produced by orchestras and by their musicians these days. And I've seen that all over Twitter and all over YouTube, and that's great. But as you say, that's not really rewarded in the traditional framework. And it scares people, not just in arts, but all over, that these skills will be rewarded. You know, if you're a an accountant, but you have a blog that's really popular in the in the community, that's great, but that's not really, you know, traditionally rewarded. Do you think there's room for rewarding these skills? Um, I wish that there were. Um, right now, I don't see that there's a whole lot of um, structure around facilitating and enabling the monetizing of online content. You know, we've seen certainly paywall initiatives, uh, the Berlin Philharmonic Digital Concert Hall, which is something that everyone points to as an example of how it could be done, still loses money for the Berlin Philharmonic. They do not have enough subscribers to cover the considerable costs of producing the high-quality content that they're putting out there. Um, I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of discussion in the music community 
not just orchestras, but right across the community, around how we go from the sort of panicked uh, loading of the airwaves uh, with cute videos from home, uh, and how we tie that back to what organizations are going to need to be doing more strategically and more long-term in order not just to stay in touch with the broader public, but also to to segment, to be considering how they're connecting with uh, their most generous patrons, uh, with the people who can probably make the biggest difference for them through this transitional period, uh, but also how they can look at attracting new audiences uh, who are prepared to make even micro-investments in the value of the content that they're being presented with. So we're seeing a lot of discussion. Uh, you know, I was looking at uh, the Side Door website uh, last night. It's not... It's I'm just trying to think what it, what, the, what the website's really called, but it's a it's a Canadian invention. It's built on the on the Zoom platform, and it's essentially an opportunity for people to buy tickets for events from home. And I think we're going to see more and more things like this as we see the uh, limitations on public gatherings being extended uh, yet further. It's just going to have to happen. So will you have a hybrid model where you have some people sitting in the concert hall, some people paying to see it from home? I have seen every possible scenario worked out. I've seen uh, the scenario of um, a socially distanced orchestra on stage playing to an empty concert hall and broadcasting to the world, possibly with some kind of pay model. I've seen the idea that perhaps we get up to the point where the full orchestra can be on stage and in somewhat close proximity, there'll be one-sixth of the audience will be able to uh, be convened, you know, every other row and every third seat, something along those lines. And a lot of adaptations made uh, in the lobby to ensure that there's no lineups, that people don't, you know, come in, in too close, close proximity to one another as they're uh, entering or purchasing a beverage or doing any of the other things that one might do. I mean, and I've, I've seen the math um, and under sort of our traditional understandings of, of what people are prepared to pay for, we're not seeing that the math works yet. So I anticipate there'll be a lot of work done on, on hybrid models. I think the other thing to say is that people don't go to concerts to feel as though they're lining up uh, at an airport uh, for an international flight, you know all the all the warmth and um, joy <laughs> of of that kind of experience. Uh, they go to be transported. They go to have a good time with friends. They go to feel as though they're part of a collective um, emotional uh, experience. And I think that's something else that we we are taking into consideration as people are putting various models forward. Is how do we replicate? Uh, the comfort and the sense of social gathering uh, with a financial model that's going to work. Given all that, Catherine, how do you feel about the sector going forward? Are you an optimist? I believe in people's creativity. I believe in the adaptability. I believe in uh, both the repertoire that's been you know, handed down to us as well as the repertoire that's being written now. I've seen uh, the first of a few compositions that have been created for musicians in social isolation. And I think, hey, you know, if we're seeing the creative potential in this and new ways of using technology uh, to not just replicate Beethoven, dearly as I love him, but to take the art form in new and interesting directions, I'm all for it. So I don't know what the answers are at this point. What I am confident of is that because of the, I'm going to use the word, unprecedented pressures of this time, I'm seeing 
people coming together to solve problems who under other circumstances might not have been talking to one another in creative and interesting ways. And some of the hierarchies that have long been in place might be being a little bit blown up right now as new skills are called for in order to not preserve, but to reinvent uh, the symphony orchestra organization for the 21st century. Well, we'll look forward to seeing what it looks like. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us today. What a pleasure. Thanks so much, Linda. Catherine Carlton is Executive Director for Orchestras Canada. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future Podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.